Hello and welcome to the Slot Plus segment of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. Today we are doing Australia d'Escalier. We, because of our vacation and travel schedules, haven't all three convened since we returned uh, from the autumnal shores of Australia and uh, wanted to just to compare notes a little bit and share a few uh, impressions and then also questions that we were left with from our trip uh, with you, our listeners. Uh, Dana, why don't you go first? What were what were the lingering things you wanted to raise with me and Steve or with our listenership? I don't know. I guess I just left. I mean, we were there for a relatively short time, right? We were in Australia for one week. We only visited two cities. And, uh, and there was a really intense amount of sense impressions flowing into our brains. And I'm just still sorting some of them out and, and just thinking of questions that I wish that I had asked while I was there. And, uh, and one example I can think of just off the top of my head is that for me, one of the kind of peak experiences of the trip was that we got to go behind the scenes at the Melbourne Zoo and uh, and see a bunch of animals and pet some kangaroos and feed them up close. And that was really wonderful. And I'm sorry to turn to kangaroos as my very first Australia-related question, but do you remember that the zookeeper was asking us, oh, do you have any more questions for me? I'm saying a horrible Australian accent. And, uh, and, and I had so many that I kind of couldn't fit them in. And now I want to ask them to whatever Australian naturalists and lovers of fauna are listening right now. And my big question is, why did the male kangaroo's back smell like maple syrup when you scratched it? We never asked the zookeeper that, and I've been thinking about it ever since. And whenever someone asks about Australia, I tell them this story that we got to feed kangaroos and this weird fact that the male and only the male smelled exactly like delicious warm maple syrup. And uh, and I don't know why. I don't know what combination of hormones or, I don't know, fur oils or what makes him smell that way. But I want somebody to tell me. I'm convinced that the, the Dana Stevens, when in contact with cute wildlife, begins to hormonally emit maple syrupy <laughs> smells. It would be great if every cute animal you scratched had a different delicious smell. But I mean, if there's one thing that you would think <laughs> would have a gamey smell, right? It's It's a wild animal hopping through the outback of Australia. Why, why is it so pleasantly odorous? I want to know. The other surprising thing this about the wildlife... This is your takeaway. Was the, <laughs> okay, you go. You I'm go, just Julie. getting started. <laughs> the, other, the other surprising thing about the wildlife was the relative commonness or lack of commonness thereof. Like, you know, you picture the blob of Australia on a map and you're like, yep, kangaroos, koalas... Maybe you maybe get so far as a platypus or a wallaby or a dingo. Um, but... Uh, like apparently the kangaroos, I came away with the impression that the kangaroos are kind of like the deer of Australia, even though they're like gigantic rabbits, that they're sort of are big about deer heft creatures that are pretty common and might be a hazard when you're driving. And like they're cute and boppy, but they're they're not like particularly rare or prized right. in the way that, for example, the Tasmanian devil is very endangered. The platypus seemed maybe not also faring as well. The koala seemed a little bit rare. That, that like that's I didn't I didn't know the relative hierarchy of um, animal flourishment. I guess that was another surprising takeaway. And then here's an urban question that I have that somebody mentioned to me in passing, and that I really wanted um, some Australians to elaborate on. But then it was time to go, and there was no time to ask them. Which is that uh, that that public places, public squares 
were were are rare in Australian cities that when they were initially built because of Australia's status as this, you know, colony for prisoners being shipped from the United Kingdom, that there was a fear of and also of course because of the indigenous people who were being displaced, that there was a fear of public squares becoming a place of uprising. And someone told me this in relation to a big public square that was near our hotel in Melbourne and said that, you know, this is was sort of a recent civic initiative to try to build a space that would be a big central public gathering place. It's where the uh, the the film museum is, the ACMI. Um, and uh, and so I'm curious about that. I want to know about the history of that and uh, and whether Australians think that that's a liability in their cities or something that the cities are are working on. So that seemed very curious. I think the thing that lingered most for me was, I mean, I spent another week or even eight or nine days uh, in Australia, though mostly in Tasmania, a tiny bit on both ends in Melbourne. But I was interested in uh, Australian politics relative to American politics on a couple of different scores. One was everyone told me whenever I asked without hesitation that Trump leads the news every night in Australia. Uh, and in fact, when I was in Australia 10 or 11 years ago, it was right when Donald Rumsfeld was getting fired. That led the news on uh, their equivalent of public radio when I was doing a long drive over and over and over again. So I was interested in the in the preoccupation with American politics as something, you know, kind of very screwed up. Uh, and yet the kind of um, dog that wags the tail of Australia nonetheless. And then kind of in a, on, a, on a related matter, Australia struck me as enormously civilized, uh, especially on one score, which is the $27 an hour minimum wage, which results in a culture of almost absolutely no tipping um, and, uh, and struck me as representing a very elevated f social floor that they've built uh, quite consciously that 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 below this nobody goes and it again to an american it struck me as tolerant civilized and relatively egalitarian you know anglo derived culture in you know stark contrast to the united states and what i would want to know is that just a fantasy projection on the part of a disgruntled american or is that something real um oh and then just very quickly i'm always interested in the relation to the sibling the sibling rivalry between cities and obviously there's an almost cartoonishly you know self-conscious one between sydney and melbourne with sydney as the sort of striver city on the beach with the you know sun and the uh you know it, it's whatever in melbourne is the kind of coffee clatch like you know much more low-key intellectual cultural art city or whatever i'm sort of interested to the extent that those cliches or stereotypes are true or untrue um and whether or not if i spent longer in sydney i might have a cathexis with it as deeply as i had with melbourne uh where i had adjusted to my you know jet lag fairly well by the time melbourne rolled around i was there a little longer i hit it on my return trip um and fell completely and completely in love with it and i'm just sort of curious to know going back whether i would have the same experience of sydney if i spent longer there or whether this kind of division of you know social roles between the two cities is very real and i just respond more to melbourne the thing that was really striking to me about both of those cities um was just the relative pop the population size relative to the population of the entire country so sydney is six million melbourne is four million and the entire population of australia is 26 million if you think about that in the context of you know the population of new york is eight million but the total population of the u.s is what are up to 300 now million to 330 uh, maybe so that those those relative numbers to me are striking and i think create and possibly Australia's location too seem like they foster an outward lookingness in both cities that was interesting to me. The other thing I learned that 
about the historical underpinning between the two cities is that essentially Sydney was the city derived of the the wave of colonial expansion to Australia of it being a prison colony. And Melbourne is the town that was built by a gold rush. So of the two big uh, forces driving European uh, colonialization of Australia, you have really, really different economic factors and cultures. So I wonder if that, um, I mean, basically, Melbourne seems like the cool culture town. It's also the moneyed town. It's the town where there's been enough money to foster culture over time. Um, and I think that is something that might come into focus if you spent more time there in an interesting way. Um, the other big political thing that was striking to me was was mandatory voting. That was the thing that came up in my conversations with Australians is everybody has to vote. And it just changes what elections are like and what they're about in ways that seemed really interesting to think about potentially applied to American politics um, because turnout no longer becomes the thing, right? Turnout is the whole thing that you're trying to predict, understand, drive, move if you're trying to win an American election. Um, and if you take that out of the equation, the conversation, I think, becomes quite different. Does that um, go along with with the, the, the voting day being a day off? Election day is, is a non-work day for everyone? That is also a reform that makes a ton of sense. That came up less in my conversations with people, possibly because it didn't even occur to them and that wouldn't be how you would do it because it's so obvious that it's an excellent idea. Um, but yeah, I, I, uh, that, that would make sense if that's the case, given that it's mandatory. The one last thing that struck me um, was just thinking about how ignorant we as Americans are of Australian news. I had dinner with um, an American journalist based in Sydney talking about the operations of different uh, American news organizations there. Um, and I was sort of surprised to learn how small the reporting presence is in Australia for major American news institutions. Like you'd think Australia would be one of the places where you'd have a robust bureau. It's a, you know, a, a trusty, loyal ally in the Pacific and a longtime partner and a thriving economy in Asia, a growing area of influence. Um, but, um, you know, American news organizations, their foreign bureaus have been slashed and stripped and sliced. Uh, and primarily they focus on areas of extreme conflict, areas of extreme threat to American interests uh, and areas of extreme disaster, poverty and disease. And so Australia sort of gets exempted from all of that, and we basically just ignore it in ways that I had not reckoned with because I myself was ignoring it until we got there. Um, so I thought I, I just hadn't quite challenged my own assumptions about how well we how well we track Australian news um, and, until arriving there and talking to some journalists based there. Anything else we missed, Dana? I'm sure that more will come up after Australian listeners start to respond. But yeah, I mean, those those that's a good start. That's a good start. I guess, in a way, what you just said summarizes my whole desire to have this segment, which is getting there made me realize how much I don't know about Australia and how little I've thought about it over the course of my life. And now suddenly it's a place on the map of my mind and I want to know more about it and keep learning more. The one last piece I will say uh, is that in some thing, possibly like you know, I don't know, literature from the airline on the plane or something, like an airport airplane magazine. Um, 
there was some little intro, kind of Pat Magazine intro about your your stay in Australia and and what the things you might have learned and how one of the things you might have learned was that the word Australian had one syllable. And I spent like the next 20 minutes of the flight being like, Australian, like just trying to figure out how in my head, even though I just been exposed to the Australian accent for uh, a full, whatever it was, eight days. Um, how that would possibly be pronounced as one syllable. And then in the next paragraph, which I had not yet arrived at reading because I was so puzzled by this, uh, the writer spelled out the the word strine, S-T-R-I-N-E. And I was like, oh, I guess that's the way, strine for Australian. <laughs> and then I could suddenly kind of hear it. I was like, all right, all right. The Australian accent retains mysteries to further plumb. Steve, any final, final thoughts? Very quickly, I was impressed by... Um the uh duty the dutifulness that people brought to um attempting to bring to present day memory the uh, crimes committed against the native peoples of australia and that uh at, this was at almost every public function we went to the um obligation of the host was to say something about it and to honor the memory of the elders uh, and um, and my sense is that this is, and I would love to drill down with the Australians about this, but my sense is that this is in part a good faith effort at atonement, but it's also of a piece with their own attempt to embrace their past as a disesteemed people who were exiled to Australia. The, the, the um, convict ruins are a huge part of Tasmania. They're regarded as uh, sites of unbelievable cruelty. Um, and abuse, and they're preserved as, as 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 this, and so the sort of habit of historical memory, I think, was gotten into maybe first vis-a-vis uh, -vis their own past, um, but then now now that appears to have extended quite a bit over the previous decade or two, to, you know, towards the essentially essentially genocide committed um, uh, against uh, the uh, earliest inhabitants uh, of um, uh, of it. So I mean, I I just thought that that was really honorable. It didn't strike me as forced. Um, at all, so. Or just, I mean, however, it, it struck me that I couldn't read how it might strike people of various stripes in Australia, but it was much more a present part of public life than it is in American life. The, 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 just that thinking about the original inhabitants of whatever venue you were having a book event in would be like a, a de rigueur part of the proceedings um, felt like a very present reckoning with the past in a way that would be unheard of here. Yeah, it made you realize what a distance we have to travel where it's not even that we feel the need to do that and that we're straining toward it. It's just completely absent from the American imagination. Yeah. And my sense from talking to um, the wonderful Michael Williams, who was our guest from the Wheeler Center, is that uh, such moves are by no means a sign that all is well and good and fully enlightened on that score. Um, you know, uh, Native Australians only got voting rights like 50 years ago, I think uh, he was telling us. So um, there's th there's a deep and complicated history there, obviously, as there is everywhere. Um, but it was fascinating to see how the country is beginning to reckon with it. Uh, all right. In sum, go to Australia. Uh, Australian listeners, if you have answers about maple syrup, uh, the financial <laughs> provenance of Melbourne's cultural sophistication, uh, or the actual state of affairs in the Australian reckoning with, with either its prison history or its history of oppressing the people who lived there first, please let us know. Slate Plus members, thank you so much for supporting Slate and the work that we do and for listening to this bonus segment of our show. We will talk to you next week.